This Parsha podcast is dedicated in merit of the speedy recovery of the Rafuah Shalema of Amy Batavora May she merit a complete and total and speedy recovery from her illness. Parsha Sav has 96 verses and 18 mitzvos, and it's going to be mostly a continuation of the theme of Parsha's Vayikra, namely the sacrifices that are brought in the Mishkan and later in the Temple. And the end of the parsha is going to conclude going back to the seven days of inauguration of the Mishkan. We read about that at the end of the book of Exodus. Once everything is assembled, once everything is completed, there's going to be seven days of inauguration, of consecration of the Mishkan. There's going to be a transfer from Moses being the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. He's going to transfer that to Aaron and his sons. And there's an entire process dedicated to that, which is going to be described in the end of the Parsha. Now the Parsha begins, God spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons saying, This is the law of the elevation offering. So the elevation offering was the first offering that we read about in last week's Parsha. And whereas in last week's Parsha we got the general outline of it, we're going to get more of the details here. And the Ramban points out that if you look at the beginning of last week's Parsha, Parsha's Vayikra, the instruction was not to Aaron and his children, it was to all of Israel. And the difference is that last week's Parsha, the instructions or the the narrative was relating to the sacrifices that all of Israel needs to bring, and therefore the commandment was addressed to all of Israel. Whereas in our Parsha, it's about the processing of those sacrifices which were done by the priests in the tabernacle, and therefore the commandment is directed to Aaron and to his sons. So these are the laws of the elevation offerings. It is an elevation offering that stays in the flame of the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall remain aflame on it. So there's a lot to unpack here in this uh, second verse of the Parsha. We're talking about the elevation offering, but more specifically, we're talking about the second of two daily, what's called tamid, meaning ongoing sacrifices. In the morning, the very first sacrifice offered in the tabernacle and subsequently the temple is a daily communal, what's called tamid, which means ongoing, ever-present ola, elevation offering. It's the first one brought in the morning. And the final one brought in the late afternoon is the second tamid ola offering. And the instruction that we get right over here is the first one is the evening ola offering. It is offered in the afternoon, but it is burned, the processing of the meat of the sacrifice is burned throughout the evening on the fire, which is on top of the altar. Now, we don't have sacrifices today, but a very famous teaching on the Talmud, the Book of Brachos, tells us that the prayer schedule that we have, not the notion of prayer in general, but the fact that we have a morning prayer and an afternoon prayer and an evening prayer, that corresponds to the daily ongoing Tamid elevation offerings that were present in the temple and in the tabernacle. We have the morning prayer, the Shachar's prayer, which corresponds to the morning Tamid, the morning Ola offering, the first one to kickstart the day of sacrifices. And we have the afternoon corresponding to the afternoon sacrifice. And we have the evening prayer, the Meirev prayer, which corresponds to the processing of the afternoon sacrifice, which is done the entire night, just like the of prayer that we have done the entire night, modeled after the schedule of the afternoon offering, which is processed 
the entire night. And there's a general idea that's one of the major themes of the discussion of sacrifices is that prayer is a substitute for sacrifices. Not to say that they didn't pray when they did offer sacrifices. In fact, part of offering a sacrifice was offering a prayer like we talked about last week. But in general, we cannot achieve the atonement, the repentance effectuated by the sacrifices, but in their stead we have prayer. This is a general idea that when someone is praying, they're in effect trying to offer themselves They're trying to dedicate themselves, just like they would do with a sacrifice, to God via their prayer. So that's the introduction to the Parsha. It's talking about the elevation offering, which is put on the fire on top of the altar all night until the morning, and then the fire of the altar shall remain aflame on it. Incidentally, in the first several verses of the Parsha, we're told three times about the fire on top of the altar, and therefore our sages derive from that that there's three separate fires or pyres on top of the altar which are always kept aflame. In fact, there is two separate prohibitions to extinguish the fires on top of the altar. Now, there's an interesting word. In fact, the word tzav, which is the name of the parsha, it means command. It's not like an instruction. It's not go tell Aaron and his sons. There is a commandment. And Rashi picks up on that nuance that the Torah uses, a little bit more of a strong word. Go command them. And Rashi quotes from our sages that every time it says command, tzav, as an instruction, it's adding some oomph, it's adding some power to the instruction, and it's trying to encourage the recipient of that instruction both now and for eternity meaning that there's a reason why this instruction needs to be commandment, not just, not just told, not just instructed. It has to be commandment, com- it has to be commanded because there is a likelihood that people have a certain degree of resistance. And therefore, they have to be encouraged because they're likely to not be as excited to fulfill this particular mitzvah as they would other mitzvahs. And Rashi goes on to tell us that the reason why they needed to be encouraged, they needed to be coaxed, they need to be urged, they need to be exhorted to fulfill this mitzvah, the mitzvah of the Ola offering, is because we need to be encouraged in an instance where there is a loss of money. And perhaps the explanation is, you know, you have an animal, it's a perfectly healthy, normal animal. It could be a cattle, it could be a sheep, and you bring it to the temple and you slaughter it and everything is burned. And you think about that, you know, this prime Angus beef, all the ribs, all the steaks. You have a thousand pounds of delicious meat. And with the Ola offering, well, there's no tangible benefit to any humans. You know, all the other offerings, some humans partake in it. Sometimes it's the Kohen and, and the Kohanim, the general priestly class. Sometimes it's the owner, the person who brings it. But here with the Ola offering, with this first offering that we're talking about, the entirety of the animal, all of that delicious and succulent meat is burned to a crisp on top of the altar. And perhaps the reason why we need to be encouraged to offer this is because we are less inclined to be generous in such an instance because we don't perceive it as something that returns necessarily uh, value to us, and therefore the Torah needs to encourage us. And as a general rule, you know, the things that are more difficult for us, we need extra encouragement. You know, we have the upcoming 
festival of Pesach, and you know matzah's it's very expensive. It's you know twenty six to twenty nine to thirty dollars a pound. Essentially, we're talking about you know three to four dollars for a single matzah. It's a sawdusty biscuit, and we're paying an insane amount of money to eat it. And the answer is yes, mitzvahs are not necessarily cheap. You know, kosher meat. You go to the kosher aisle in your grocery, and you'll see the kosher meat's much more expensive. Uh, we don't work on Shabbos, and that's a constraint. But the Almighty is encouraging us. Don't worry about it. You think you're going to lose. You're really not going to lose. And therefore, we're encouraged to do it nevertheless. Now, the Ramban, he disagrees with Rashi's take on this verse. And he says, wait a minute. Moshe, Moses here is talking to Aaron and his sons. They're the ones who process the Ola offering. They're not the ones who bring it. And they essentially lose nothing. In fact, the one benefit that is derived to humans from the Ola offering is the hides. The hides of the animal, in fact, go to the Kohen. So, the sons of Aaron, the priests, they lose nothing with bringing a sacrifice. And therefore, why would they need to be coached? Why would they need to be encouraged? Why do we need to say, Tzav, command them to process the Ola? They have nothing to lose and everything to gain. So there are several answers to this question. Uh, the Chistuni, one of the commentaries, says that if the priest who is processing an ola, so someone's bringing an ola, whether it's the daily ola offering that's brought by the community, the tamid, it's an individual ola offering, whatever it may be, if they mess it up, they have improper thoughts, they, they do something wrong in processing the ola. So it needs to be replaced. Who replaces it? Well, then it would be the Kohen who messed up, they would be on the hook to replace the animal. And therefore, the risk for the Kohen is the fact that they may actually be left with the bill if they process it incorrectly. And the Kliyakar, one of the great commentaries, he says something very fascinating. He says that it could result here in a vicious cycle. You know, you have the Kohen, he's doing the Ola offering, and he messes up. So he's got to bring a second Ola, he's got to pay for a second Ola offering to replace the one he messed up. But what happens? As he's bringing the second Ola offering, he's in a bad mood. He's angry. After all, I can't believe I have to pay for another Ola offering because I messed up. And that thought, that angry, grumpy Ola offering that is processed the second one, will actually, those thoughts will invalidate the second one. I'll have to bring a third one, and so on and so forth. And specifically, the Ola the Ola, after all, like we mentioned last week from the Ramban, the reason why someone would bring an Ola offering is because they would have improper thoughts. Someone has improper thoughts, that is like a degree of a sin, so to speak, and therefore you bring the Ola offering to atone for that. Therefore, if the, if the priest who is processing the Ola also has improper thoughts, so to speak, angry thoughts while offering the sacrifice, it's obviously not going to enable the sacrifice to achieve its aim, and therefore it would need to be repeated, and therefore the coin needs to be warned, do it properly, and don't be worried about the monetary loss, you do it right the first time, you won't have to worry about it, and don't get into this vicious cycle, this pattern, this spiraling pattern of having to constantly do another Ola, another Ola, because every time you do the next Ola, you are doing it improperly. Now, it's interesting that the Parsha begins with talking about the elevation offering, which is done in the evening. In the morning, there's a morning Ola, and then there's the evening Ola. 
So doesn't it make more sense to start with the morning Ola and give us the instruction related to that and only then move on to the evening Ola, the one that's burned the entire night on the, on the altar? Perhaps you could argue that in the Jewish calendar, we always start with the evening. You know, Shabbos starts with Friday night and the festivals start at night, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, etc. Maybe that's, uh, that's the answer. But one of the other commentaries, he tells us something interesting. He says that, you know, let's go back into, into context. We've had now, you know, six or seven weeks talking about the tabernacle and building it. And we read about the fact that there's going to be a transfer of power in a sense. There's going to be Moshe, who's the high priest. After they build the tabernacle, they're going to spend seven days of inauguration. And during those seven days, Moses is going to be the high priest. At the end of those seven days, he's going to transfer that to Aaron and to his sons, and he's going to consecrate them to be the Kohanim, and he's going to be demoted back to being a regular Levite. So what would happen? There's seven days where Moses is doing all the work. Every one of those seven days, he's building and he's disassembling the Mishkan, offering all the sacrifices, including the special sacrifices that are only brought during this week of inauguration, the ones we read about in Parshish Tetzava a few weeks ago. And when Moshe completes these seven days of work, well, what's going to be? It's near evening time. And then he's going to transfer the priesthood to Aaron and his sons. And therefore, the first sacrifice that Aaron and Aaron's sons are going to offer is the evening, the daily evening sacrifice. And therefore, that's the first one that Moses instructs them because that's going to be the first one to kickstart their careers as priests. Now, the final thing from the second verse of the Parsha, command Aaron and his son, saying, this is the law of the elevation offering. It's on the flame, on the altar, all night, and the fire on the altar should not be extinguished. It should remain aflame the entire night. So if you look in the Hebrew side, you'll notice that there's another small letter on the Hebrew letters. Just like last week, the first word of the Parsha, in fact, the first word of the book, Vayikra, the last letter of the first word, the Aleph, was small. Similarly here, the Mem, the letter Mem for the word Mokda, which means the fire, that letter is small. And there's a variety of explanations as to why there is a small letter in this second verse of the Parsha. One of the answers, very interesting, powerful lesson, and that is that this mokta, the word mokta means the fire, but it's also the biggest fire. Like we said, there's three fires on top of the altar, and the biggest one is called mokta. And what happens when something's really big? In Judaism, we're taught that when something's very big, it has to have a commensurate amount of humility. You know, the greatest sage, the greatest leader, the greatest prophet that we've ever had, Moses, the most humble. As someone ladders up in spiritual greatness, they have to have a companion laddering up of humility. And therefore, this largest fire has to also have a small mem to remind it, so to speak, to have humility. The Talmud tells us, we know that there's 18, really it's 19 blessings that we say in the Amidah prayer. And for four of those blessings, we bow. We bow four times in the Amidah service. The Talmud, the book of Brachos, page 34, tells us that a high priest, when a high priest says the Amidah prayer, 
They have to bow 19 times, one for each blessing. Why? Because they are greater, they have to lower and humble themselves before God even more. The Talmud even says that if you have a king, how many times does the king bow down when he says the Amidah prayer? And the halacha is, the law is, that the king bows down the entirety of the prayer. He bows at the beginning of the prayer and he unbows at the end of the prayer. And again, because he is of elevated stature, his humility has to also be of the highest regard. So here we have this largest fire, and therefore it is reminded, so to speak, and of course lessons for us, but it is reminded that it must have a degree of humility befitting its degree of high stature. So that's the first verse, and we have, we read about the law of the processing of the elevation offering in the evening. And then we are going to be talking about the next law that we're going to be talking about is what's called the Truma Sadeshen and the Hotsa Sadeshen. You know, you, on top of the altar, you have the fire, and the fire is burning the various sacrifices. And what happens when they're done? Well, then you have a pile of ash. So the very first activity, not sacrifice, the very first activity done every day in the temple and in the tabernacle is you take a little bit, a handful of ash, and you remove it from the top of the altar. Essentially, you're cleaning out the altar. And then once it's it gets very dirty, then you actually clear out the entire thing and you start from scratch. And that's uh, the mitzvah that we read about over here, the, the cleaning out of the ash and the removing of the ash uh, outside of the temple grounds and outside of the camp. Now, the Talmud actually tells us, really interesting, that this activity was actually the activity that was most desirous of the priests. This was only done by the priests and there was an understanding that whoever did this, it was a merit to become rich. And therefore, everyone was always trying to go to go do it. So initially, they used to have a race where all the priests would run. The first one to get there, he wins. And then there was a story where one of the priests was running and the other one was neck and neck. And then as they're going up the altar, one of them shoved the other guy off the altar to be able to get there first. And he broke his leg. And they changed the system that it wasn't done via a race. It was done via a lottery. And they would only include kohanim, priests that had never previously done this mitzvah because it was something that was meritorious to bring someone to wealth, to great riches. Therefore, unless everyone present had already done it once, they would only allow first-timers to do it to be able to spread the wealth around to all the priests, give them each an opportunity at least once in their lives to do this uh, interesting mitzvah, this mitzvah that leads to riches, and that is the taking out the garbage, in effect, clearing out the ashes from above the altar. Now, it's interesting that every single day, regardless of how much ashes there is, you remove a little bit of, the, you take a handful of the ashes and you remove it from the altar. And you don't wait, in effect, till the entire thing is covered in ashes and you clear it out. And there's an idea from Rav Hirsch, and he says that there's an importance of always looking forward. You know, in every aspect of our lives, complacency and reliance on past performance is the enemy 
of future progress. And therefore, the very first thing that we do in the tabernacle is we take yesterday's mitzvah and we, so to speak, clear it away. We clear away the ashes of yesterday's sacrifice to remind ourselves yesterday's accomplishments are great, but in order for me to accomplish today, I kind of have to remove them to a certain extent and be able to start from scratch with a new opportunity, a new opportunity for mitzvahs, a new day in the tabernacle, a new day to strive for greatness. Now, there's another lesson here from this hotza, sadesha, from taking out of the ashes from on top of the altar. If you notice, you go back to the Parshas Vayikra, it always talks about the sons of Aaron doing the work. You know, Aaron's the high priest. He's going to become the high priest. And his sons are going to do a lot of the work in, uh, that's the scribe that's enumerated in last week's Parsha, Parsha Vayikra. Here, as the introduction to our Parsha, it doesn't talk about just Aaron's sons. It begins with Aaron and his sons. And what's the first thing, or one of the first things that we read about is the separation and the removal of the ashes, and eventually the instruction to place wood on top of the altar. And the question is, why is why are we suddenly reading about Aaron himself, not just Aaron's sons? So one of the commentaries tells us that you may think that removal of the ashes is like taking out the garbage. You know, it's a demeaning task that you leave to the janitor. Therefore, to dispel that notion, the Torah tells us the most esteemed Kohen, the Kohen God, the high priest, the spiritual leader of the people, the great Aaron, he should, quote-unquote, take out the garbage. The value of the mitzvah is not the way humans perceive it, but in respect to the fact that God said to do it. And therefore, the hierarchy that we assign these are artificial constructs. They're not real. And in fact, they're counted to the Torah. Don't think that this is a less important mitzvah. This is maybe the most important mitzvah. This is the mitzvah that we need to have Aaron himself be the one commanded to it. Don't denigrate it because you think that it's taking out the garbage. There's a famous story with a rabbi in uh, in Cleveland, Rabbi Gifter, that one of his students said to him, a student was, after all, a Torah scholar. And the student told him, well, you know, my wife... She wants me to take out the garbage, and it's kind of demeaning. I'm a great Torah scholar, and how could I have her tell me to take out the garbage? It's, it seems so improper. After all, I'm a great Torah scholar. So the rabbi tells him, oh, yeah, you're right. It's absolutely right. How could you have your wife tell you you're a Torah scholar? You can't take out the garbage. The next morning, knock at, the, not the, knock at this man's door, and who does he see by the door? The great rabbi gifter. What do you hear? What can I do? Can I, what can I get for you? And he says to them, oh, I'm, I'm here to take out the garbage because I heard that the husband in this house is above taking out the garbage. And therefore, I'm going to come do it because, you know, someone, you know, someone's going to do it and I'm happy to do that job. And of course, that individual took a, uh, an important lesson from this story. And maybe we could even argue that the mitzvahs that people do without fanfare, without glory, are even more special. Not that they're just as special. They're even more special because there's only one reason that someone does it only to fulfill the will of the Almighty. If it's some other mitzvah that grants a person honor or stature, plaudits, they get lauded in the eyes of their peers, well, maybe there's a little bit of seeking personal honor that's going to motivate them to do that mitzvah. Whereas, to take out the garbage, the only reason why you're doing the will of the Almighty, therefore, that mitzvah is ever more powerful. 
So then we read about uh, the fire on top of the altar. There has to be a continuous fire. The fire cannot be extinguished. And you have to add wood on top of the fire every day as needed. And on top of those fires, you actually offer the sacrifices and there is a continuous fire. It should never be destroyed. Rashi points out that there's two separate prohibitions against extinguishing the fire. Now, one of the commentaries, Rebbein B'chai, he notes that there's an incredible miracle that happened in the altar because as we read about in previous weeks, the altar is covered in a thin film of copper. And if you have a fire, burning hot fire on copper, it's going to burn through, it's going to damage it, it's going to puncture it. And one of the miracles of the temple and the tabernacle is that this film of copper never damaged, uh, was never damaged by these continuous fires that were ever present on top of the altar. Now, when it says that the fires will not be extinguished or may not be extinguished, it is viewed both as a commandment, but it's also a promise. Why? Because the Mishnah tells us in the end of chapters of the Fathers, it lists 10 miracles that were present in the temple. And one of them was the miracle that the waters of rain would not extinguish the fires on top of the altar. You have these three fires, and sometimes it's raining, maybe there's a thunderstorm, there's a lot of rain, and normally rain would extinguish the fire, but one of the miracles of the temple, one of the miracles of the tabernacle, is that even though the fires were exposed to the elements, they were never extinguished by the rain. Now, Rupchai Valajner, one of the great commentators on Perkei Avos, in his commentary, he asked an interesting question. He says, wait a minute, there's a miracle here. The water, the rain, is pouring down on the fires on top of the altar, and the fires are not extinguished. That's an amazing miracle. But isn't there a better miracle that we could do? Can't we just have God take that the fire is not even struck by the water. The water constantly misses the temple, the tabernacle area. It never rains there. Isn't that a better miracle to do? And he said, interesting uh, idea, very powerful idea. He says that the water is always representative of a livelihood. You know, in an agrarian society, people need water. The water is the most critical ingredient to the success of their crop. If it rains, they have a crop. If it's a drought, then everyone's starving. So water is always emblematic, it's always representative of the livelihood. And the fire is representative of Torah. And we maybe sometimes think, we have a tendency to think, that when we study Torah, well, how can we study Torah? How could the flame of Torah, so to speak, survive when we have all these concerns of life, I got to make a livelihood. I can't, I can't study so much Torah. I can't spend so much time studying Torah because, after all, I got to make a living. I got to feed my family, and therefore we have this miracle. Yes, there is water, and yes, the water is hitting the fire. But don't think that the waters will extinguish the fire, even when you have the. The, the, the challenge and the responsibility of making a livelihood, don't think that that will impinge, that will encroach upon your Torah study. Your Torah study will still outlast even when it's raining upon it if you are truly dedicated uh, to that. So that's the beginning of the uh, of the Parsha. And then we 
start going into more of the various offerings and how they are processed. So we had already the Ola offering. We learned some of the laws of what is present on top of the altar. And now we read about the meal offering. And these are meal offerings. These are minchas that we didn't talk about in previous weeks. And there are three of them mentioned in the next several verses. Number one, that every Kohen, every priest on day one of their inauguration in temple service, they bring a meal offering. And then the high priest, also on the day that they are inaugurated to be the high priest, they bring a special meal offering on day one. And then the high priest brings an additional meal offering every day, twice, just like there's the two daily communal tamid Allah sacrifices. Every day there's two daily high priest meal offerings that he brings in the temple, in the tabernacle, every day. Now the Sefer HaChinuch, which is a medieval book that gives us uh, some of the background and some of the principles undergirding the reasons why we have mitzvot. He says the reason why the high priest has to bring two daily meal offerings for the entirety of his tenure as high priest is because, after all, the role of the high priest is to be the intermediary between the Jewish people and their father in heaven, meaning that he's responsible to, so to speak, elevate the prayer on their behalf. And via his prayer and via his sacrifices, the Jewish people are forgiven. We spoke about this a little bit last week, that when the high priest makes a blunder, in effect, it portends poorly on the entire of the Jewish people because he's, after all, their emissary. He's their stand-in, so to speak, in the relationship with God. But therefore, someone like that who has communal responsibility, he should bring a sacrifice that corresponds, that mirrors the communal offering brought every day, just like there's two daily Tamid offerings, there's two daily offerings that the high priest brings. And all this, again, the, the, the reason why is to awaken our thoughts and to place our mind and our focus with God to help encourage us to pray and to repent and to deepen our connection with the Almighty. Now, in verse 11, we read a very interesting uh, idea, which, even though the laws of sacrifices are not uh, relevant in modern life, at least not until we build the third round of the temple, but there's a law here that uh, is invoked over here, and actually in 11 and verse 21, we see the same idea that is actually present in in common life today as Jews. And I'll read to you verse 11. Every male of the children of Israel shall eat it. This is talking about the meal offering, an eternal portion for the generations, from the fire offerings of Hashem. Whatever touches them shall become holy. Those last words, whatever touches them shall become holy. What it means is, if there's a food or a vessel that touches, that comes to, comes to contact with a holy sacrifice, in a way that it absorbs some of its taste, that food and that vessel has to be treated according to whatever halachic stringencies of the meal offering. Meaning, if there's certain requirements as to when you're allowed to eat it and who's allowed to eat the meal offering, those restrictions and those requirements are conferred upon to, upon the other thing, the other food item, the other vessel that has absorbed that taste. Similarly, we read about uh, the sacrifice, the chatas sacrifice, in verse 20 and 21, whatever touches its flesh becomes holy, 
And if you have a earthenware vessel in which this holy meat was cooked in, then the earthenware vessel has to be broken because an earthenware vessel cannot be kosher, cannot be purified. But if it was cooked in a copper vessel, it could be purged and rinsed in water. So this is an idea that we call koshering, meaning that if you have some taste which is absorbed in the walls of a vessel, it could be purged, it could be cleansed if you burn it out, so to speak, you're able to remove the vestiges of taste and that is absorbed in the walls of those pots and pans and other dishes, and therefore you could kind of cleanse it. So we have, for example, Pesach, you have uh, a problem if you have a, a a vessel, a pot, for example, that was used to cook something which is not kosher for Pesach, like chametz, uh, so leavened bread. So can you use that pot on Pesach or not? So here's the kind of source of this idea that whatever is absorbed in the walls of a vessel, that taste becomes part and parcel of the vessel, and that could be conferred to whatever is being cooked in that vessel anew. So you have, uh, let's say, non-kosher food. It's cooked in a pot. Can you use that pot? You can't, because if you use that pot and you cook something in that pot, that taste of the non-kosher is now conferred upon the new food, and therefore the new food becomes non-kosher like the pot is non-kosher. Similarly, if you have a pot which is not kosher for Pesach, that confers the non-kosher for Pesachness on top of the food that is cooked inside of it, so you won't be able to use it. However, the workaround is if you cleanse, if you purify the pot, if you purge it, you're able to kind of cleanse it from the taste which is embedded in its walls, and therefore it can become like a brand new pot and can be used. Uh, if you have a non-kosher pot, you could make it kosher. If you have a, if you have a non-kosher for Pesach a vessel, you could make it kosher for Pesach by this process of koshering it. We read about the processing of a sin offering. Uh, again, this is um, uh, the general rules we read about in last week's parsha. but the actual processing of the sacrifice is instructed to us in this parsha. And we read an interesting law, and this is something that we'll see a little bit more about, some more examples of this. If someone brings a sin offering, if the priest brings a sin, a sin offering and by mistake sprinkles the blood in the wrong location, so in effect it, it invalidates the sacrifice, it cannot be eaten and it should be burned. It must be uh, it must be burned because it was invalidated. And then we read about the processing of a guilt offering and which parts of the meat are given to the priest. And then verse 11 of chapter 7, we read about a feast peace offering, which is called like a Thanksgiving offering or carbon toda, which is in effect a version of a peace offering, which is done when someone has a miracle that happens to them. This is a special sacrifice that someone brings in the event that one of four miracles happen to them. Number one, if they travel over a desert and they arrive safely, they bring this sacrifice as a thanks to God. If they travel over sea and they arrive safely, they bring the sacrifice. If they're released from prison or if they recover from a deadly illness, in one of these four cases, it's a miracle that happened to them. They thank God by bringing one by bringing a thanksgiving offering, a carbon toda. Now, in fact, today there's some opinions as to whether or not, you know, modern travel, you could travel over a desert and it's not really considered much of a danger, 
You know, you were in an airplane or you were in a uh, a cruise, so you'd crossed over a sea or a, or a, or a desert, and you arrive safely safely at your destination. Is that considered a real danger that you need to thank God for uh, or not? Is it kind of standard? And uh, there's varying opinions in it. Some people, uh, they do the equivalent of a carbon total, the equivalent of a Thanksgiving offering, which is a special prayer that they say, a special blessing that they say. And uh, others maintain that, no, it's not considered a real danger. And therefore, in modern travel, we would not actually say that blessing because it's not a real danger. Because, you know, after all, you weren't really, you know, you survived the United Airlines, airplane food, it's not a reason necessarily to, um, your life wasn't really in danger, and therefore you don't need to bring this equivalent of this sacrifice, meaning you don't need to say the blessing of thanksgiving to God. Now, it is interesting that this sacrifice we actually did not read about in last week's Parsha. Uh, All the other sacrifices we talk about hitherto have been, at least the general outline, have been detailed to us in Parshas of Ayikra, but now we get the details. Here, this particular sacrifice, this Thanksgiving sacrifice, we don't get it at all in last week's Parsha, and it shows up here amid the instructions given essentially to the Kohanim, to the priests, when really this law is applicable to all. Whenever someone goes through one of these four miracles, they have to bring the sacrifice And therefore, it's kind of interesting that it's placed over here, not where it would seem more natural for it to be placed, and that is in the Parsha preceding the hours, Parsha's Vayikra. So some of the commentators suggest that, you know, look at these four miracles. Someone travels through a desert, travels over a sea, someone's released from prison, someone who recovers from a deadly illness. These miracles are not necessarily nature-defined. They are what is called a nace nistar, meaning a hidden miracle. It's not readily apparent to all that there was a miracle in effect, like this is not the splitting of the sea, the ten plagues, it's not like manna being parachuted from heaven. This is a miracle that could be understood in the natural course of things. You know, someone travels over the desert, they arrive safely. Well, that's what happens. That's not necessarily a miracle. And as a general rule, we are predisposed to ignore these miracles and only be wowed by an open miracle. So there's a story with Rav Shach, one of the great Torah sages of recent years. There was a, a new father who had celebrated the arrival of a baby daughter after only one year of marriage. So we have a tradition that when someone has a, a child, a, a son or a daughter, they thank God. And with a daughter, they don't have, of course, a bris, there's no circumcision, but instead there's a kiddush, which means a celebration, a feast to thank God. So this student asked Rav Shach, well, do I need to have a kiddush after all? You know, it was one year, there was no problems of infertility. And we had a baby, so is it really something that's so miraculous that we need to thank God for? So he responded, you know, imagine you were infertile for eight or nine or ten years. And then you had a baby. How excited would you be? How delighted would you be? You make a huge party and you thank Hashem, you thank the Almighty for doing this tremendous miracle for you. So what happened? God spared you from seven or 10 years of agony, and he gave you a child right away. All the more so, you should make a huge celebration. You know, for us, we have a predisposition 
to appreciate, to be impressed, to be thankful for the open miracles, like a baby after years of infertility. But the hidden miracles we tend to ignore. Who needs to be reminded of this lesson more than anyone else? Who needs to be reminded that we should not ignore the little miracles? Well, the priests, after all, they were privy to ever-present open miracles in the temple, in the tabernacle, every day. And like we mentioned earlier with the uh, chapters of the fathers, the chapters of the fathers, it lists 10 open miracles that were present in the temple and the tabernacle at all times. So for example, like we said, the, the rain never extinguished the fire, uh, but it says that even though there was so much meat being processed, there was not a single fly that had come in to try to poach a little bit of the meat. And it lists 10 open miracles that happened in the temple and even in the city of Jerusalem when the temple was extant. The priests were surrounded by open miracles. For them, for us, it's hard to appreciate the hidden miracles. But when someone is surrounded by open miracles, it's infinitely harder to appreciate the hidden miracles. Therefore, when addressing the priests themselves, the Torah interjects with the carbon toda, the Torah interjects with the peace offering that is brought as a thanksgiving to God to encourage them to be inspired and to be impressed by the hidden miracles of God. Now, the Midrash tells us that sometime in the future, this seems to be like a post-Messianic era time, all sacrifices will be no longer, with the exception of the carbon toda, with the exception of the peace offering that is brought as a thanksgiving. Similarly, in this distant future, or in this different world that is being described in the future, all prayers will also be discontinued, but the prayer of thanksgiving will not be discontinued. We have at the end of the Amidah prayer, we have the Modim prayer, which is the thanksgiving prayer. That's the one blessing that will not be discontinued. Why are the thanksgiving sacrifices and prayers eternal? Why are they never going to be discontinued? So maybe the answer is that the objective of all sacrifices are to rectify and to fix. But what happens when someone is rectified, when someone is fixed in this future utopian world where everything is good? Well, those sacrifices are unneeded. But Thanksgiving, it's not about fixing. It's the objective of the world. The famous Ramban that we read at the end of Parsha's bow tells us that the entire reason why God created the world is for people to have thanks and to thank God who created them. And because that's the objective of the world, that indeed will stay forever, even in a time where humanity is perfect. And similarly with prayer, all the prayers are, you know, I have something that I need and I pray for it. Well, if I have everything, both in material things and spiritual things, I have everything I possibly need, well, I don't need to pray. In this future, we won't need to do all these prayers, but the one prayer that we'll need to do, the one prayer that is the bedrock of existence, the reason why we were created to give thanks to God, that will not be discontinued because that, after all, is the purpose of it all. So read about the 
Thanksgiving sacrifice the the peace offering, which is brought as a thanks to God. And we read at, uh, regarding how it is processed. And we also read a restriction against eating it beyond the day of its offering. So this is something which is present with all sacrifices that are consumed. There is no, there isn't an infinite amount of time that you have to consume it. You have a certain amount of time. Some of them it's one day, some of them it's one day and a night, two days. Every one of them has a diff- every one of the sacrifices has a different time period in which consumption of the sacrifice is allowed. And here we read the flesh of the feast, Thanksgiving peace offering must be eaten on the day of its offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. This is the first mitzvah that we're told not to leave over in the morning. And then verse 16, we read, if it is for a vow or a donation, it must be eaten on the day he offered his his feast offering and on the next day. So this is a different kind of offering, which is you have an extra day and what is left over from it may be eaten meaning that what's left over after day one could be eaten on day two. So that's a second kind of peace offering, which is a general peace offering, not brought as a Thanksgiving offering, as a vow or as a donation. You have an additional day to consume it. But like we said, with all sacrifices, there is a deadline. You can't just put it in your freezer and wait a few months and eat it then. What to do if there is leftover meat that was not consumed in the time frame allotted? Then it has to be burned. That's the next verse, uh, verse 17. What is left over from the flesh of the feast offering shall be burned in the fire on the third day. So you have two days to eat it. If you don't eat it on day, th- day three, you have to burn it. And then verse 18, we read, if the Kohen, if he processed it, either when slaughtering the animal, when catching the blood, when walking, when sprinkling it, if he had in mind improper thoughts, meaning that he thought to consume it either outside of its time or outside of its place, that is considered a pigle, that's rejected, and you are now not allowed to consume it, and that needs to be burned. So again, there are these guidelines, rigid guidelines, as to when and how and where you're allowed to eat the sacrifices, and those restrictions have to be in the mind of the Kohen, the mind of the priest, when they are processing the sacrifice, and if they have improper thoughts, meaning that they tend to eat it outside of its time or place, uh, outside of the guidelines uh, of that particular sacrifice, that is considered pedral, and that needs to be burned. So we have this instruction to burn uh, either when something is done improperly or when something is left over beyond its time. And the Sefer Chinuch, the book that we quoted earlier, uh, gives us an interesting perspective regarding this instruction to burn something when it was left over or to burn something when it was done improperly. Why do you need to burn it? Why do you need to eradicate this meat from the world? So he says that the nature of meat is to spoil. Remember, before refrigeration, you you had a very short amount of time before the meat would go bad. And what happens? You may have a sacrifice. The sacrifice either was left over or it was done improperly. It needs to be gotten rid of. It's not kosher to consume either at this juncture or via this processing. And therefore, we're told to burn it, to eradicate it from the world. Why? What happens if it spoils? You'll have a person who sees the stinking, rotting, putrid piece of meat and it smells bad, it looks disgusting, it's consumed by by worms, something like that will be disgusted by it. And it's important for us to never be disgusted with these sacrifices, and therefore we're told to completely destroy it, 
not to just get rid of it, not to throw it away, not to uh, tear it up, to get rid of it entirely because we don't want to be disgusted with our sacrifices. In addition, you know, we're told that there's a limited time how long someone can eat a sacrifice. Why? Why doesn't God say, you know what, you can eat it for a month, for two months? What's the lesson with this time limit, how much we're supposed to eat? And he says a very deep lesson, that this is a hint to our reliance on God. We should rely on God not to engorge ourselves with food too much, not to hide the food for tomorrow, to be reliant on God that if there's two days you have to eat it or one day you have to eat it, that's it. And if there's leftover, you throw it out. Don't worry about it. He will feed you and you don't have to worry. You don't have to engorge yourself with food. You don't have to worry about it. You can rely on God that he'll take care of you and you could even burn the leftover meat if it is not able to be consumed beyond that particular time. And then we read about the various state of man and of the meat of the sacrifice in order for that sacrifice to be eaten by man. Uh, if the meat becomes contaminated, it becomes impure, it cannot be consumed. So you have meat of a sacrifice, it comes into contact with uh, something which renders it impure, it cannot be consumed. Not, and in addition, the person, if the person becomes contaminated, either as a result of his own personal contamination or as a result of him touching a contaminating animal, if he is contaminated, he cannot eat that sacrifice uh, as well. And then we read about the various parts of an animal, and this is nothing to do with sacrifices necessarily. These are the parts of the animal that we cannot consume. The fats, what's called the chalev of oxen, sheep, or goats, we are not allowed to eat. So this is interesting. Even when you have a kosher animal, there are parts of the meat of the animal that are not kosher. So for example, the book of Genesis, we read about the sciatica when Jacob was injured by the angel in their nocturnal battle. He struck him in his hip, he dislocated the hip, and therefore there's a mitzvah, a restriction against eating a certain part of the animal that corresponds to the part of Jacob's body that got injured in this battle. But here we see that there's another part called the chel of the fats that we're not allowed to eat. Even in a kosher animal, we're not allowed to consume that. Uh, we're also not allowed to eat an animal that's been torn apart. We're not allowed to eat the, the blood of an animal. And this is only for birds and from other animals. Rashi tells us it's not from fish. So fish blood, I guess, is okay. Um, and if someone consumes any blood, the soul will be cut off from its people. So there's some interesting laws here that we see regarding what we're allowed to eat, what we're not allowed to eat, a little bit of the kosher laws, the fat, we're not allowed to eat, the blood, we're not allowed to eat as well. Now, the Sefer Chinuch tells us that the reason why we are not allowed to eat these foods, in general, all the laws governing kosher, says the Sefer Chinuch, is because when someone consumes an animal or whatever they consume, you are what you eat, and there are certain parts of the animal that foster either uh, things which are not healthy physically or things which are not healthy spiritually. And therefore, the parts of the animal that we're told not to eat, the blood, the fats, etc., those are things that are bad for us. And therefore, the Torah wants us to avoid them and gives us the restriction against consuming them. Now, the blood, like we said, the bird and the animal is prohibited, but the fish and the grasshopper, we're allowed to eat the blood of those animals is okay 
of course, bon appetit for anyone that is interested in doing that. And the Ramban actually tells us that the reason why we're not allowed to consume blood is because when that is absorbed, it actually creates haughtiness and arrogance within us. That is the result of consuming blood, and therefore we're we're encouraged by the Torah and we're restricted by the Torah against consuming it because it's going to engender bad character within us. And then we read about the process of the peace offering and which parts of the animal are given to the Kohen. And finally, in verse 37, we read a conclusion of the topics discussed until now. This is the law of the elevation offering, the meal offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and the inauguration offering, the feast peace offerings, which Hashem commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day he commanded the children of Israel to bring their offerings to Hashem in the wilderness of Sinai. So there's a conclusion here. These are the offerings, but it begins, this is the law of the elevation offering. And the Talmud tells us, based on this particular verse, it says, Zos HaTorah, this is the law, this is the Torah. It says the Talmud, the book of Menachos, someone who studies the law of a sacrifice, it is as if he brought that particular sacrifice. Meaning that if someone studies the law of the elevation offering, that creates the same reality spiritually as if they themselves offered the elevation offering and the same would apply to all the various offerings. Now, there's a very important value in that because we know we have 613 mitzvahs and the Talmud tells us that there's 613 parts of man and the insinuation is that every part of man is perfected by its corresponding mitzvah in the Torah. Now, if there's a mitzvah we cannot fulfill, it seems like what it's telling us, that completion, that perfection is beyond us. But here's the workaround. There is a mitzvah of the elevation offering. Currently, we cannot bring an elevation offering, but we can study the laws of the elevation offering. And therefore, when we study those laws, that is as if we brought that sacrifice and we gain its value and its spiritual cleansing that is brought upon us. Now, chapter 8 and essentially the rest of the Parsha are going to go to the consecration of the priest, the seven days of the inauguration of the tabernacle. And this is essentially a repetition of what we read in Parsha's Tetzavah, the guidelines of what to do during these seven days of inauguration, seven days of transferring. Like we said, Moses, Moshe is at that time, he's the high priest. The Kohanim, the priests are being trained. Every day, Moshe is going to assemble and disassemble the Mishkan, and at the end of the day, it's going to be transferred over to Aaron and his sons, and they're going to take over from there. Now, Rashi tells us that this is a repetition, and this happened seven days before the erecting of the Mishkan, and even though it was told us already once in the in Parshas Tetzaveh, it is repeated why? Because that is the way things work. When you have an instruction that is, you know, for some time in the future, you repeat it closer to the time to remind and to encourage the people about those instructions that you gave earlier. So God indeed gave those instructions earlier, but he repeats them again at the time of the action. So it begins with instruction to Moses, take Aaron and his sons with him and all the vestments and all the oil and the oil of the anointment and the three sacrifices that are going to be brought every one of these seven days. So there's the bull of the sin offering, the two rams and the basket of matzos. So this was already described in Parshas Tetzava. Bring the entire Jewish people 
in the entrance of the tent of meeting, in the entrance of the Mishkan, and Rashi tells us that this is a miracle on its own right. We're dealing with a nation of many hundreds of thousands, and this is a very small place, but miraculously, the entire assembly was able to fit in that very small, constricted location. So the entire assembly gathered, and Moshe said to them, this is what Hashem commanded. He brought Aaron, and he immersed them in water. He got them dressed in their special garments, the four garments of the regular priest and the eight garments of the high priest. He anoints them with the oil of anointment, and he also anoints the tabernacle and everything within it, and he thus sanctifies them. He sprinkles the altar seven times. The altar is anointed. The various other utensils and vessels are anointed. He pours the anointment oil on Aaron's head, and he uh, moves it around his forehead and near his eyes, and then he anoints the sons of Aaron, everything the way Hashem commanded him. He brings the sacrifices. He processes the sacrifices. He takes the blood, and this entire description is, again, a repetition of what we read, what he does with the blood. He takes the blood, and he puts them in the ears and the thumbs and the, the big toes of Aaron and his sons, and everything exactly the way God had instructed and God had commanded him. And finally, the Parsha concludes, Aaron and his sons are instructed by Moses to not leave the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, so they actually had to remain in the confines of the Mishkan for seven days, until the day when your days of inauguration are completed, so they were not allowed to leave. And you're going to be inaugurated over the seven-day period. And in fact, if they were to leave, they would be actually guilty of a capital crime. So it was very serious that they had to stay there for seven days, not to leave the site. And Aaron and his sons carried out all the matters that Hashem commanded uh, through Moses. Thus concludes the Parsha that they were there for seven days uh, in the temple grounds, in the tabernacle grounds. They did not leave. There is a statement from Rav Hirsch about these seven days that Moshe is building the Mishkan seven times and is disassembling it seven times, all in the same location. So this is not assembly and disassembly to move. It's just assembly and assembly to stay in the same location. And that is hinting to the seven places where the Mishkan where the tabernacle and the temple were situated. Number one, you have in the wilderness, so until they arrive in Israel. Once they arrive in Israel, they establish it in Gilgal for 14 years, then to Shiloh for 369 years, the Nov and Givon, that's five, first temple, second temple. There were seven distinct locations where the temple was erected. And each one of them, it had to be removed. Either it was destroyed or it was relocated. So you have seven times Moshe is assembling the Mishkan and seven times he is disassembling the Mishkan. And then what happens on the eighth day, which, by the way, next week's Parsha begins, it's with the eighth day. What happens on the eighth day? It is built and it is assembled and it is not disassembled. And that's a reference for the third temple may be built speedily in our days, which, like the eighth day of this process, will stand forever. May we indeed be meritorious to witness that day. Thus concludes Parshas Tzav. Again, 
the theme is still sacrifices, but more details about it. And the Parsha concludes with the seven days of inauguration. Moshe is going to confer the priesthood to, to Aaron and his sons. And the temple, the tabernacle that we've been talking about for so long, is finally going to get completed. But it's not exactly going to be without its tragedy. There's something very bad is going to happen on that eighth day.